If you have a Bible, why don't you open with me to Genesis chapter 1. If you uh, don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the pews in front of you, and it's likely that it's on page 1 in those Bibles. So Genesis chapter 1, and let's pray together. Father, we ask that as we open up our Bibles, that you would open up our hearts and our minds, that you would speak, and that your Spirit would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. And we pray that you would shape and form us to be your people in this world. And we ask this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. So, you know, Father's Day, like Mother's Day, is an opportunity, I think, you know, because it's, these are holidays that actually focus on gender. Uh, they provide opportunities, I think, for us to reflect upon kind of different roles of men and women and husbands and wives. And so while it provides an opportunity, I think, for us to reflect on the role of man and woman and husband and wife, uh, they can also be spaces and times that people can create stereotypes of these roles as well. This past week, I read an article in The Atlantic entitled, The Terrible Stereotypes of Mother's and Father's Day Cards. The subtitle read this. It said, dads love beer, moms love wine, and greeting card companies love gendered tropes about parenting. And they were making the point in this article that oftentimes Mother's Day cards reflect this idea that moms are busy about the home, they're always being asked questions and having children chasing them down and demanding things from them and needing things from them. And this article said, by contrast, fathers are oftentimes seen as unnecessary. Uh, the article says, a lot of Father's Day cards don't show dad doing much actual parenting. Dads in cards are busy, but they're busy with their hobbies. They're grilling, fishing, fixing things, telling corny jokes, watching sports. One card listed a litany of stuff you ask mom. Under the stuff you ask dad, it said, where's mom? <laughs> But the idea that seems to be communicated is that moms are essential and dads are useless. Well, all this communicates really a stereotype about men and women and fathers and mothers. And of course, greeting cards are not the only places where we find stereotypes about gender roles. Oftentimes in church, there are also stereotypes, depending on what Christian tradition you grew up in. There are stereotypes about what men ought to do, what dads and husbands ought to do, and what wives ought to do. Now, in contrast to the stereotypes, there's another movement within the broader culture of deconstructing the stereotypes and deconstructing the norms. I read another article this week in a totally different magazine that was arguing that we do away with these gendered holidays altogether with Mother's Day and Father's Day and instead replace it with Guardian's Day. And one of the reasons for this is simply that the role of parental figure in anyone's life can be played by a variety of different people. And so they, they, and they also complain that these stereotypes can often feel oppressive and kind of weigh people down and feel like you don't measure up or what if you don't fit the stereotype and all of that. But all of it, I think, raises questions for us in the church. And the question we're going to begin reflecting on this morning and begin and, and carry into next week is, what is the role of a man and a woman? What is the role of husband and father and, uh, or of, of father and, and mother and husband and wife? Are there distinct roles that belong to men and those that belong to women? And how should we understand this? I mean, what exactly does the Bible say about these issues? 
And this morning, we're going to lay a foundation, and then next week, we're going to dive into the particulars. And so what I want to do this morning, kind of by way of laying a foundation, is I want us to explore kind of three basic ways that men and women relate to each other. Or I should say three basic ways over the last 2,500 years that people have understood how men and women relate together. One is what might be called polarity, and it's the traditional view. And it says that men and women are unequal and they are different. Uh, The second view is what might be called the sameness view, which is maybe more the progressive view. And it's the view that men and women are equal, but there's no real difference. And then I want to contrast both of these views with what I think the Bible teaches in Genesis chapter 1. So we'll kind of explore that. So this morning, just uh, by way of uh, warning, might feel a little bit more like a lecture than a sermon. So we're going to kind of get into some information. But you dads, you are happy for this, aren't you? This is what you came to church this morning looking for, was a lecture. Can I get a witness? An amen. So let's talk about each of these views in turn. First, polarity. So these views of uh, polarity, sameness, and then the biblical view, I think can be charted along the lines of equality and difference. Now, in the polarity view, men and women are different and they are not equal. And this view was espoused, uh, maybe the, 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 most, the most famous voice that kind of espoused this view was the fourth century Greek philosopher, Aristotle. And Aristotle essentially believed that human beings in their essential essence are both soul and body, and so the body matters, whether or not you're a male body or a female body matters, but it matters in a way that women are dehumanized. And so here's Aristotle in his own words. As between the sexes, the male is by nature superior and the female is inferior. The one rules and the other is ruled. This principle of necessity extends to all mankind. So when Aristotle compared people in the household who came underneath the male leadership, here's what he says. He says, quote, the slave does not have the deliberative part of the soul at all. The male has it, the female has it, but without authority. The child has it, but in an undeveloped form. And so for Aristotle, just at a base level, men are superior and women are inferior. Uh, Women are ruled and men are rulers. And so men and women are different and men are superior. And he had a one-sex model when it came to humanity. He actually believed that men uh, were the only truly fully formed humans and that women were somehow deformed or distorted humanity. Uh, They were misbegotten men. He elsewhere says that a woman is, quote, a deformed male. And so to be human is to be a man, and to be a woman is to have deficient humanity. So that's Aristotle. Now, of course, I I think in in our day and age, these ideas strike us as absurd and destructive, and certainly they are both absurd and destructive. But in the ancient world, these were the ideas that took sway, and they actually had a tremendous impact in the Greco-Roman world that Christianity was birthed and grew in. And in fact, it was the main, it was the main view that took hold. 
In fact, in uh, the Greco-Roman world, uh, men outnumbered women one and a half to one. And do you know why? Well, it wasn't natural. It was because when families would find themselves pregnant with another girl, sometimes they would be, or, and they gave birth to that girl, often the, the little baby would be cast off and would be discarded. And it was totally legal in the ancient world, and it was morally acceptable to expose babies, which essentially meant you gave birth and then you kind of discarded them so that you didn't have to care for them. And this was the world that Christianity kind of birthed and grew up in. It was this world where women were very much dehumanized. They were seen as lesser human beings, lesser people. Now, in contrast to this view of polarity, where there was inequality and differentiation, is a second view. And we could call this the sameness view. And so we're going to move right over to this one, sameness. So this view was espoused by the teacher of Aristotle, whose name was, does anybody know who uh, Aristotle's teacher was, class? Plato. So Plato believed that humans were immortal souls trapped in matter, physical stuff, bodies. And so according to Plato, the body didn't matter. And if the body doesn't matter, then sexual differentiation doesn't matter. And so for Plato, it is the immortal soul that takes in goodness and truth and beauty. And so if you want a good, if you want to live a good life, you need to focus on your soul and not on your body. And the immortal soul, of course, has no sex. It is asexual. The immortal soul may take the form of a man or a woman or a cat or a bird, depending on the kind of life you live, because Plato believed in reincarnation. But for Plato, men and women are exactly the same. They are both immortal souls trapped in physical bodies and capable of reason. And Plato astonished his contemporaries by teaching that women can play any political role in the Republic. And so here is Plato in his own words. He says, there is no pursuit of the administration of a state or political leadership that belongs to a woman because she is a woman or to a man because he is a man. But the natural capacities are distributed alike among both creatures, which was remarkable and profound and kind of crazy in the ancient world. And almost nobody bought into the idea. But he said, look, men and women are equal because they are the same. They are immortal souls. Thus, no differentiation with what they can do. Now, more recently in feminist critical theory, there is the same thought that difference between men and women is basically socially constructed. And as far as I can understand, and I'm no feminist theorist, and so I don't... I'm going to try to get this as best as I can and, and quote you a feminist who kind of teaches this stuff. But feminist theorists have separated sex and biology on the one hand, which has to do with the body and biology, from gender, which is a social construct and has to do with identity and language and performance. And so the work of feminist theory is actually to deconstruct supposed essential differences between men and women because they work out inequality. Unequal opportunity, unequal dignity, unequal value, unequal humanity. And so we live in this world where difference and inequality go hand in hand. And so the reasoning seems to go, if you can diminish the difference between male and female, you might just come up with a more just and equitable society. 
And so here's Judith Welber, who's a radical feminist. She writes this. She, she says she longs for the day when gender distinctives have effectively disappeared. When no longer does anyone ask, is it a boy or a girl, to gender on an infant? When, the information as, is as, when that information is as relevant as the color of a child's eyes, only then will men and women be socially interchangeable and really equal. In other words, in order to have equality, you need to be socially interchangeable. And when that happens, there will no longer be any need for gender at all. But here's what I want you to see. For Christians, the problem with the sameness paradigm is that we believe God actually created us to live in bodies, male and female bodies. Christ took on flesh and dwelt among us as a male, and when we are raised from the dead, we are not going to escape, our souls are not going to escape these old material physical bodies. Rather, we are going to be raised male and female in a body. Are you tracking with me? How are you guys doing right now? All right, you ready now to keep, keep moving forward? So now we want to contrast the, 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 the view of polar, polarity, which is that men and women are unequal and different, and the view of sameness, which says women, men and women are equal and no difference, with the biblical vision, which is given to us in Genesis chapter one, which could be called complementarity, which essentially affirms that men and women are equal. They are fully equal, and yet they are still different. There is full equality, and yet there is significant difference, and there is shared partnership in the work that God has given us to do in the world. And so let's talk first about the idea of equality. And look at what it says in Genesis 1, verse 26. I want you to see this in your Bibles. It says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, the thing that you need to note about this passage is when it says, let us make man in our image, that word man is the Hebrew word, which is translated sometimes as Adam. And that word is a synonym for the word humanity. In fact, you can see that very clearly in Genesis chapter 5, verse 2, which says this. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he created him in the likeness of God. Look at verse 2. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man. He named who man? The male and female. Male and female, he called Adam, which is humanity. He says, this is humanity. And so back in Genesis 1, it says, then God, let's read it like this, verse 26, then God said, let us make humanity in our image and after our likeness. Verse 27, and so God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now stop. Do you see what this is affirming? Over against polarity on the one hand and sameness on the other hand, this is declaring that God created male and female different, male and female, and yet fully equal by the virtue of the fact that they share as image bearers of God. But what does that mean? 
What does it mean to bear the image of God? Now, in the ancient world, there were other people who said, were said to bear the image of God. Do you know who were those who bore the image of God in the ancient Near Eastern culture? It was the kings. The kings represented God and they ruled over God's world. And so the rest of humanity, men and women, lower classes and statuses, they were under them. They were the image bearer of God and everyone else was under their rule. But here there's the democratization of the image of God. And here there's the affirmation in Hebrew scripture against what everyone else in the pagan world was saying. It was saying, no, all of humanity is created in the image of God, which means that we are surrounded by a room full of people and a city full of people and a county full of people and a state and a nation and a globe full of people who bear the image of God. And because we bear the image of God, we share equal worth and dignity and value before the face of God. I came across a book this week that um, I'm intending to read, and it's, it's a book that develops this thesis that the, the civil rights movement uh, led by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was based actually on the notion of the image of God. Dr. King put it like this. He says, man is more than a tiny vagary of whirling electrons or a wisp of smoke from a limitless smoldering. Man is a child of God made in his image and therefore must be respected as such. Dr. King goes on and he says this. He says, you see, the founding fathers were really influenced by the Bible. The whole concept of the imago Dei, as it is expressed in Latin, the image of God, is the idea that all men have something within them that God injected. And of course, when he uses the word men here, he's speaking again of humanity. He's using it as a general term, a non-gendered man. He is saying that all of humanity is injected with something from God. And this gives him a uniqueness. It gives him worth. It gives him dignity. And he says this, and we must never forget this notion as a nation, that there are no gradations in the image of God Every man from a treble white to a base black is significant on God's keyboard precisely because every man is made in the image of God. You thought Stevie Wonder was rep responsible for that analogy? Ebony and ivory live together in perfect harmony. Come on, side by side. Um, anyway. But do you see what he's saying? He's saying, look, the very foundation for the idea of human rights and dignity and worth is this notion that all of us bear the image of God. And do you see how different this is from a materialistic, very naturalist outlook on the world? You see, according to science, a materialistic science, there is no basis for saying that human beings have rights and dignity and value. Bertrand Russell, you know, the famous uh, atheist uh, philosopher, put it like this. He, he, he called humanity an accidental collocation of atoms. Stephen Jay Gold put the idea like this. He says, we are here 
because one odd group of fishes had a peculiar fin anatomy that could transform into legs for terrestrial creatures, because the earth never froze over entirely during an ice age, because a small and tenuous species arising in Africa a quarter of a million years ago has managed so far to survive by hook and by crook. We may yearn for a higher answer, but none exists. And you know, if this world is matter and nothing more, if we began from a cosmic accident and we are headed to a cosmic meltdown, then he is exactly right. We are no different from mosquitoes or monkeys or flowers. We are simply a different collocation of atoms. But according to the Bible, we are created beings and we have worth and dignity and value because we have been made in the image of God. But this doesn't just mean that we have worth and dignity. It also means we have a mission in the world. Notice verse 28. It says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. So he says, look, go out into the world and see the raw materials of the world and draw out their potentiality, rule over it in wise and loving ways that do good for the rest of the human creation. Go into the world, you know, and take the sound and organize it and make music. Take wheat, you know, and water and uh, grind it and bake it and make bread. Take grapes and make wine, you know, and go out and take the raw materials of the world and do something useful with it that benefits and serves humanity. He's calling humanity. He says, look, you are my image bearers. You are my kings, my rulers in the world. Now go out and rule on my behalf with wise and loving stewardship of all creation. You have imminent worth and imminent value and a mind-blowing mission in the world. But here's what I want you to see in this text. This vocation and this worth and dignity belongs equally to both man and woman alike. Or let me just put it like this. Sometimes I've heard in church, you know, um, Christians spout off wild notions about how, you know, um, men are actually supposed to be the rulers in the world and women are kind of just supposed to submit to the men in the world. But listen, according to the Bible, both men and women are both called to be image bearers, to be rulers in God's created world. Do you see that in the Bible? Male and female, he created them in God's image. That means men and women can both go out and we can start businesses and run companies and run countries, become the president of the United States and, and, and exercise leadership and creativity and cultivation in God's good world. This is the vocation of both male and female, and we are equal in this respect. Are you tracking with me? So men and women are both equal, but they are also different. And notice back into the text. He says, let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion and so on and so forth. And then he says in verse 27, so God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. Male and female. In other words, God did not create us to be non-gendered, 
people who have no bodily distinction among each other. God actually designed us. He created us to be both male and female. This is a created good that comes from us from the wise and the loving hand of God. So sexual difference is a creational good. Amen. But what does that mean? If it doesn't mean that men are supposed to be the rulers and women are just supposed to, you know, support the men in whatever venture they're going after, what does it mean? If we're both supposed to have equal worth and dignity and value and both are called to exercise wise and loving leadership and influence and creativity in God's world, what does it mean? What kind of difference should we expect? Well, this is a very contested, a very controversial topic, and so let's just pass right over it. <laughs> now, we are going to get a little bit deeper into this next week, but let's begin with this. At a rudimentary level, men and women differ in their anatomy and their physiology. Women can grow a child in a uterus and give birth to that child into the world and then nurse that child, and men can't. And that very rudimentary creational difference, a difference in anatomy and physiology, oftentimes has repercussions into how both men and women engage in their vocation and leadership and ruling in God's good world. I remember back when um, my wife had had my wife, Alicia, had had um, Audrey and Mia and, and, you know, nursing them and all this stuff with the babies, and that can sometimes be difficult and, and, and hard. And I remember her looking at me one day and saying, why do you even have those? They don't work for you. There was a delayed laugh among some. <laughs> Women can give birth to a child and they can nurse a child and men can't. So that has some implications into kind of like the vocations you choose to go in, space you choose to come out of it for a while. And of course, this difference and their equality is intended to serve a partnership in God's mission in the world. Notice God says to the man and the woman after he creates them in his image, he says, be fruitful and multiply. That is not something that a man or a woman can do alone. You need both in order to be fruitful and multiply. Can I get a witness on that? That's basic biology. But I can't engage and my wife can't engage in the vocations that God has given us alone either. It is not good for a man to be alone, Genesis 2 declares. And so men and women are called into a partnership together in a mission that is larger than themselves to raise family and to go into the world and to be culture makers in the world, doing something beautiful with the world that God has made. Now, what does this look like in different cultures and times and places? Now, listen, I believe that one of the difficulties for us as Americans living in the 21st century is on the one hand, if you grew up in the church, we grew up in churches that stand on the other side of the Industrial Revolution. 
And after the Industrial Revolution, a large dichotomy was drawn between a bread maker or a homemaker and a breadwinner. The breadwinner would go off to the factory or he'd go off to the office, and then the homemaker, who was expected to be the wife, would sit home and would raise the kids and would do the laundry and would wash the dishes and, and do the stuff. So there was home life here, and then there was work life that was out there. But you know, before the Industrial Revolution, that's just not how things operated. People didn't, you know, there was the, 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 both men and women oftentimes lived together on a homestead, and it would be the homestead, and, and there would be labor that would draw upon the efforts of husband and wife and children and servants all on the homestead to produce the, the wheat or the crops or the milk or the cheese or the butter, and there would be kind of a partnership and a team kind of being productive but we live in a different kind of economy. And so as a result of that, we have in, you know, especially in the 20th century, there developed these strong notions of here's what men do and here's what women do. And then that was sort of, uh, those fires were further fueled by notions from pop psychology about how men are, or women are from Venus and men are from Mars. Anybody here ever read that book back in the day? And of course, if you are one of those men that feels like you're a little bit more from Venus than from Mars, you're a little bit more sensitive and compassionate and the touchy-feely type, you prefer gardening over hunting or something like that, you kind of felt like you weren't the right kind of man. You know, you didn't know how to fix things. And I, don't, I can relate to this because I don't know how to fix anything. I break things. And then I fix things and they're always temporary. And I enjoy cooking, you know, and uh, I, I'm, I, you know, but back in the day, you know, you'd feel like you were a less than man if you didn't fill the proper roles, you know, and I remember, you know, growing up hearing these notions, you know, that the man was in charge of the finances. And if I ran our finances, our finances would be a complete train wreck. Like Alicia is way better at this stuff than me. And there is a fluidity when it comes to gender expression. Some women have more masculine kind of character, you know, classically masculine characteristics and traits, and some men have more feminine characteristics and traits. But none of that is grounded in some sort of deep biblical distinction. A lot of that does have to do with cultural constructs. Furthermore, another difficulty with this whole issue is that we live in a culture and a time and a place that values work that generates a lot of money. And so when you are talking with somebody in Africa and you go up and you ask them, you know, you introduce yourself to them, they introduce yourself to them, you know the very first question they ask you when you uh, meet somebody in Africa? They say, how is your family? They want to know all about your family. I was in Africa for, you know, uh, two different periods for 10 days or eight days at, at a time. Nobody asked me the size of my church. Nobody asked me how successful of a pastor I was being. They all just wanted to know about my family. Those were their concerns. That was their culture and their time and place. When you meet somebody in American culture, what's the first question they ask you, man or woman? They say, what do you do? And what you're supposed to do at that time, you feel all nervous and anxious because you have to produce something that's going to impress them. And if you make truckloads of money, you will impress people. It are, it's the celebrity rock stars and athletes and movie stars that we read about in our magazines. We care. You know, I looked at the, the newspaper cover this morning, and there was some article about what's the prince? The prince, he just had a... 
Harry. See, you know. That was a test. That was, yes, Catherine, you failed the test. No, I was just kidding. Um, you did not fail. You succeeded. Thank you. But why do we, he's the prince. He's got a lot of money. But people who have unimpressive jobs and who don't make a lot of money, we're just not that impressed by it. We're kind of embarrassed. Like if that's, when I was a telesales agent, I sold wireless phones, I was embarrassed to tell people what I did. It just didn't sound impressive enough. Now parenting, I don't know if you realize this, but if you are a stay-at-home mom or a stay-at-home dad, you don't generate a lot of revenue doing that. You spend money, don't you? And yet in a culture that values work only and calls it work only when it generates money and especially a lot of money, if you're in a calling and a vocation that is not generating wealth, you can feel like, you know, you've got to have something else to tell people. And so if you're a stay-at-home mom and you've chosen to, to, to stay at home with the kids, invest in your kids, I want you to know from the vantage point of the scripture, that is all part of this broad calling that God puts on humanity. Be fruitful and multiply, namely make families, invest in families, grow families, and then go into the world and do useful things with it, and then raise people who will go into the world and do useful things with it. It's all valuable kingdom-oriented stuff that God values, and men that neglect that calling because they're so worked up in producing and having this career, or women that neglect that calling for the same reasons because the culture doesn't value it, God would say, come on. Like, look around. Like, God doesn't measure the value of work by how much money it generates. That is a late modern thing. Instead, God calls human creatures into being. And he, 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 he gives, he injects us with worth and dignity and value. We're image bearers. He gives us a vocation in the world and he doesn't let us go there alone. He allows us to partner together with each other. And the differences between men and women and actually between a whole lot of other kinds of differences, those differences actually can be collaborative and can actually increase and enhance the work that we are doing in the world together. And so here is the biblical vision of male and female, equal and yet distinct and different, and yet called to partnership in the work of God in this world that involves both family as well as culture making, as well as kingdom work. This is what we are called into. But of course, as the biblical story unfolds, we have been unfaithful in that calling. Men and women have not treated each other as equal partners. Men and women have sometimes looked down and sometimes men have used maybe church teaching to oppress and to dominate and to control. Sometimes women have used their own power and their own way to oppress and dominate and control. The relationship breaks down. And then there's no more partnership in the work God has given us. And then instead of actually going into the world and investing ourselves through sacrificial love into families and into our work and into leadership and influence that actually blesses and serves people, instead we're trying to build an identity for ourselves and build a name for ourselves so that we can you know, post things on Instagram and Facebook and present. And when we introduce ourselves to people, we can, we can prove that we're worth something by the work that we do. And I do this and I do, we're always litigating and presenting, and it's destroying us. 
But God has not left us there. And the good news of Christianity is that God himself has entered into creation in the person of his son, Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And through him, all things that have been broken and lost, and all of us who are broken and lost, have been reconciled through his own generous and sacrificial death on the cross. And he died and he rose again from the grave so that he might gather a community of followers around himself who can find the image of God restored in them as we trust him and follow him, as we release our need to prove ourselves and to litigate and to impress other people and to present an image and we let go of that, we say, no, I, I want to serve God by serving humanity and serving family and loving people. And I want to be faithful to the callings, whatever they may be in my life. Even if the world doesn't find them impressive, I will invest myself here because this is the way in which I can serve and love and follow and glorify God. And I can learn what it means to be an image bearer in creation again. And this is what God in Christ has come into the world to do is to restore in us the divine image that has been lost and broken. Now, next week, we're going to dive back into this topic again, and we're going to get in kind of the, the weeds of 1 Corinthians 11 and kind of explore together some of the more details of what uh, Paul teaches about these issues in 1 Corinthians. But as we close this morning, let's just pray together, and let's just ask that God would strengthen us and give us fresh passion and vision, and creativity for the work that he has put before us in both the home as well as in the workplace, whether we are men or women or husbands or wives. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we come to you now, and we ask, O oh Lord, that you might come among us by your Holy Spirit and I pray that you would convict us in those areas in our own life where maybe we have pursued the idols of our culture instead of living lives marked by sacrificial love and goodness and service. God, would you enable us to be people who are content with our state in creation, with the limits of being created beings? And would you give us strength by your spirit, that we might live well in this world and reflect you well and represent you as image bearers in creation. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen.